everybody and welcome to the latest edition of Golf Only Better. It's our preview ahead of this week's US Open, the third major of the season. And delighted to be joined by Ben Coley, Dave Tyndall and Matt Cooper to look ahead. Welcome to you all. Hello. Hi, Sarah. Right. Plenty to discuss as far as the US Open is concerned. But I think, gents, there was a little bit of news last week, which kind of rocked the golfing world. So it would be remiss not to start uh, with that. So the news that the PJ Tour, the European Tour, the DP World Tour, apologies, still say the European Tour and the uh, PIF, the Saudi Arabia tie up, they have agreed effectively uh, to merge or in no uncertain terms to work together. Now, I remember seeing these guys on, on social media, as many of the players did firsthand, as we all did. And it was kind of shocking news, unbelievable, really, when you think what has happened over the last 18 months, two years, and the the contention, the, the disagreements and the fallout between the golfing world, between the, the respective tours and bodies that they are now effectively going to be working together. Yes, admittedly, we don't know all the details. There's still a lot to be ironed out. There's still a lot to be discussed. But basically, they're all now going to work together. I think first and foremost, for the good of the game in the long run, I think everybody would agree it's the right thing. It's a good thing. But let's just get your individual thoughts and, and take takes on the news which was released last week. Ben, I'll start with you first of all. I'm sure there was initial shock and surprise. Now you've had time to digest how do you assess the announcement? How do you assess what is going to happen? Um, it's really difficult to, isn't it? And I think it's um, among the sadness and anger and all those other things, the, the frustration is that they hurried this announcement out without really any sort of plan. It doesn't seem that they know. So for us to be able to know is very, very difficult. I think it's, it's, it's a pretty sorry state of affairs that a few fellas get together, have a cigar on a golf course and eat some Italian food and decide on the entire future of the men's professional game. I don't think that's to be celebrated, really. Um, and I don't think these are people with the game's interests at heart. They're people who are interested in furthering the business side of things. And obviously, um, on the Saudi Arabian side, uh, much more scurrilous intentions than that. So there's, there's a lot of sadness and anger and frustration and confusion. But the other thing really is that since it's happened, I've it feels like with every passing day, it's felt less likely to actually happen. Um, increasingly, it seems that there are some very, very serious hurdles here. And for two organizations to have only weeks ago uh, been set for a court battle, among other things, to cover antitrust and the idea that the PGA Tour cannot monopolize men's professional golf, to then join forces and have Jay Monaghan say that's kind of what we're trying to do here, uh, I guess it depends a lot now on politicians. So we've gone from businessmen to politicians and all the time us as fans are left a little bit in the dark. So I still feel sad um, and and confused and, and uncertain, I suppose. Um, on a purely sporting level, yes, if it means Cameron Smith's back on the PGA Tour, that's a good thing. Um, but I struggle to focus on that potential uh, ray of light amid a fairly dark couple of weeks. Yeah, and, and that's the thing. It's been such a mess and it's still just, just it's still a mess. And as you said, Ben, it's kind of the, the legal side, the lawyers, the antitrust, the, the feds, the government. Clearly, I think the PJ Tour was struggling. They were they, they were scared, they were worried, and they've they've looked at this and thought, hang on, we need the litigation to go away. So how can how can we do that? So effectively, they've all decided to get into bed together. Dave, what, what was your initial view and what's your view maybe after a few days of digesting the news? 
Yeah, I've kind of got strangely sort of views that don't kind of add up because I was shocked. And yeah, on the other hand, it was completely inevitable, wasn't it? So how do you tally those two? Surely when you're shocked, you just couldn't have seen it coming. And yet, as soon as it's gone in, I felt like, of course it was going to happen. It's money, isn't it? It's just money. Everything is about money. So I I ended up just sort of rolling my eyes at it and just thinking, uh, what what a complete mess. And why should we be surprised by this? If I was a player, though, that's the interesting thing, isn't it? What, What do the players think and... And, you know, is there sort of regret that you didn't go over? I, I really think there shouldn't be regret that you didn't go over because surely you made that decision on a on a sort of moral basis. Well, as Justin Rose was saying earlier this week, he, he said he didn't want to go there because he felt like it, it wasn't a kind of retirement home. He didn't want to just get paid out one last time. So so he, you know, he, he, he saw it as somewhere to go just for one last payday. But he, he thought the action was still where... Uh, it was going to be so. It's a strange one. All, all the players now, now, some of the PGA Tour players want sort of, you know, paid for not joining it. <laughs> it's just all a sorry mess, isn't it? And then suddenly, there's from the others from the live side, there's, there's players or fans of live saying, "Well, look at that. We, we told you so, and we made the right decision. It's your fault for not gambling." But uh, I, I don't know. I, I, my overriding feeling is just kind of one of sort of horrid acceptance that it was always going to happen like this. And I don't like having to think that. And I think, Matt, let's get your take. And what, what's what been interesting to me is they've alluded to there, and Jimmy Dunn, obviously, he was instrumental in this, was a power player on the PGA Tour policy board. You know, he's kind of said that these guys who didn't go are going to get effectively a stake, equity stake in the, in the new venture. So again, it just comes back. It's like another payout. It's more money. It's like, oh, well, we didn't go for 100 million or 200 million. So we need to be compensated for that. And it's just, I mean, it's just the, the greed and the hunger and the, it, it kind of, as, as Ben said at the top, it's, it's a sad state of affairs because we are now just, Matt, every day is dominated by millions and millions of dollars. And where's the, the love and affection and, and the beauty of the game just seems to have been lost. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Ben alluded at the top to the fact that uh, Jimmy Dunn, Jay Monahan and Ed Halili met up with the head of PIF in Venice. Uh, a true story here. I, I actually got mugged at the, in Venice at the start of this year. And I just I just fear that the world of golf hasn't been mugged there as well this year. Um, it, it just and, and, and it's it just feels that those four people have decided what happens for the future of the game. And I think it's a real worry for the DP World Tour because Keith Pelly was said he was very excited, very thrilled about what had happened. But if you're a member of the DP World Tour, effectively four people for whom it would not have been a very high priority have decided what the future of that tour is. And I think that's got to be a bit of a worry. And I'm also, uh, although I've had concerns about many other things regarding this, the greed and the human rights issues, my biggest concern has always been that the entire game of golf is potentially in hock to one investor, it's effectively privatised. And that still remains the biggest problem for me, that, that, um, that somebody gave me a very good, a, a very good uh, sort of metaphor and said, if you've got a business and you've got 40, 50 uh, customers, which in, in essence the tours have in, this, in the corporate sponsors, and one of those sponsors comes along and says, I'll pay you 40 times as much, uh, but you can't sell to anybody else. That seems very, very good if you want to make immediate profits. But if that customer then clears off and says, I'm not very interested, 
you've got to go back to all those previous customers and they might say, well, we've found something else now. We're going to sponsor table tennis and curling. And it's like that. So that's a potential problem for golf looking forward. Um, I think because, you know, the, all these people who run it are capitalists and they're aware that if mess happens, a new a new possibility arises after it, they 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 are willing to take that risk. But if I think if golf is your biggest concern, those, those are big worries about going forward. And like you say, what it eventually leads to is just lots of people desperately wanting money. And it's not it's not it's really, really not a very good look for the game. I mean, I've had I've had three people who I, I vague, who vaguely know that I'm involved in golf have walked past me in the street and made sort of cracks about just what a money grubbing sport it's become in the last two weeks. That's that's not a good image. And it's the same for all sport, isn't it? Like the, the this idea of what happens in the long term right now. OK, it's like, oh, we secure golf's future. We haven't. Um, you've, you've made it a, potentially a good place to be a golfer right now. What about in 30, 40, 50 years? And, and, and OK, it might not be top of anybody's list, certainly not, you know, quite elderly men um, to, to worry about things like that. But we have to. It's, it's the, like the beating heart of the sport, isn't it? You need, we need to be thinking further afield than, you know, who's going to pay the prize fund at next year's tour championship. I don't really care. That's the thing. I just want, I just want like golf to be a really good sport that is heading in the right direction with people who have its best interests at heart. And uh, for all they keep saying that, you know, um, Yasser is a big golf fan. I don't think that's really, you know, I've, I've seen the line that that's why he's chosen to, to try and take over golf. Well, it's not, is it? I mean, are they going to tell me someone in the boardroom there is a big Steven Gerrard fan and that's why he's been handed a job there and so on and so forth? It's not. It's a, a wider intention and it's not uh, for the game that they're doing it. I, I think that that's also a potential problem that if you do a bit of reading about, you know, these these massive projects that are going on in Saudi Arabia, there is there is a history of a lot of money being put into into these projects and then it's suddenly disappearing when the enthusiasm for them goes. There's like a, and, and, and that, again, has got to be the big worry. Where, where, do, where will the game be if it has to go back to all its current big corporate sponsors and say, oh, we need that money again? I know, I know somebody else has usurped you and made you look, you know, you've gone. I mean, like, there are big companies that have put a lot of money in and the funds that they've given now look really quite insignificant. It's really, it's quite staggering. It is. And Dave, do you, I mean, we still don't know the intricacies and how it's all going to play out, but in broad, simple terms, do you see this this year? They've got this year to try and sort things out. This year, by my understanding, it, it stays as we are. Come the end of this year, this new entity will be announced, be vocalised, live effectively in its current form, surely goes, doesn't it? And, and effectively, it's a glorified PGA Tour with the best players back, everybody playing together, funded by the PAF. Yeah, I mean, yeah, what happens to live? I mean, I was reading some quotes trying to do some research for uh, this week's US Open and sort of reading through a live press conference. And, and here comes Bryson DeChambeau of the Crushers. And it just sounds ludicrous. I mean, what, what does that mean? And it's like, it just, it's not going to take off. And, and yeah, so there's no danger that golf will suddenly become this, or danger, depending on your outlook, is going to, going to become 54 holes full of teams with daft names. So, yeah, um, I, I can't see where Liv goes from this. So does that mean, is it as simple as the players who went to Liv just got all that money, played a few knockabout events, and then go back seamlessly into this big main organism? I, 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 just, I just don't know. It, it, it just seems like they, they kind of think they've won the Liv side of things, but... 
Have they won? I don't know. I mean, it, it does make a nonsense of all this idea that they were going to grow the game and uh, and do all these other things. Because as soon as the idea that they're going to be back on board with it, so yeah, back back to proper stuff again. It's it just shows it for kind of what the sham it was, I think. So yeah, but whether they have a couple of token events to kind of placate that side a little bit, maybe, and that wouldn't be the worst idea. But you can only really absorb one or two. Um, we've got a kind of silly season in golf as it is, so we don't need any more of that. Maybe yeah. one, but yeah, it, it's it's a sorry old mess. And, it, and all this has come just as Manchester City have won the treble as well. So it's like money is flying at us from yeah. all angles. Yeah, I know. I know. I, 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 go on, carry on. Sorry. Oh, I was going to say, if you want a bit of light, light relief. Um, it isn't it well i say it's entirely possible there is a slight chance that i am ludicrously responsible for the team names at live because at the at the press conference last may um, i was questioning one of the head honchos there because i the, the team concept it got so many holes in it and i kept banging away at this and eventually I had to give up because i was clearly just the only person interested in how many holes there were in their team concept but at the end of the meeting, the top man came and admitted to me, we haven't we haven't looked into this very much at the moment. And I mentioned that I'd written an article about uh, uh, franchise golf about three years ago. And it was a response to the 100, the cricket tournament. Well, I, and he, he was very excited and asked me about it. And I didn't tell him that it was actually, um, it was just like a sort of satire on what would happen if franchise golf came about. And he asked me where it was and I told him. And I literally, my team names were things like Nottingham Niblicks, and uh and utterly ludicrous things and when those when those names came out i was like i don't believe this i could have got like half a million consultancy fees for this <laughs> it's just utterly ridiculous so you are to blame yeah names stupid names that we've had to listen to for the last you know the last nine months a year as far as live is concerned it's all you've, given us something to, you've given us something to laugh about matt so thank you <laughs> yeah well done <laughs> Look, I'm just coming back to Dave's point. Obviously, they have said, you know, one of the things when we're looking at the PIF, they wanted, they, there is going to be some sort of team element, isn't there? There's going to be some kind of team. Maybe it's a, might be a singular event, whatever, but they've said, and that's clearly has come from, you know, the PIF, that's something that they wanted. But anyway, look, we could have a whole pod on this and that would be far too depressing. So we're not going to do that, but it's good to get your take, your thoughts. And obviously, you know, we're going to be discussing this on Golf Only Better going forward because it's, we'll, we'll, more will be revealed and we'll understand more about the tie-up and how it works. But basically, PJ Tour, DP World Tour and the PIF are, are joining forces and uniting um, and as we said, the good, the only good news really is that down the line, we will see hopefully all the best players playing together uh, in the same place again. Uh, but look, Ben, uh, US Open, um, we've had the Masters, we've had the PGA Championship. We are at Los Angeles Country Club this week. Let's talk about the good stuff. Let's talk about major championship golf and what can we expect this week. A bit on the venue, first of all, Ben. LACC, private golf course, USGA is always a bit of a talking point. But what are we expecting from the venue this week? Yeah, I mean, a lot of people will have put, I, I've written in my piece, so I'll, I'll, I'll squeeze this for all it's worth, but often we will talk about what our favourite majors are, right? We, I think on the PGA Championship podcast, Dave and I were saying, yeah, PGA Championship is great, but not usually at the top of the list of the four, right? Um, even if it has thrown up some dramatic finishes and, and did again this year. Um, but really, they should be interchangeable, right, to some degree, because only one of them has a permanent home. And I think a lot of people, certainly people who understand 
course architecture more than I do and who have seen this course, who have played this course, have been more excited about this US Open, not just than the other majors this year, but potentially any US Open for quite a long time, um, even accounting for the, the mystery around Chambers Bay and, and Erin Hills uh, and Shinnecock and some great venues. But this is one where um, the, the bar has been set high. I think we've promised a lot and I hope it delivers on that. Everything I've seen suggests it will. I'm really excited about seeing what happens when the ball hits the ground and runs. I mean, the PGA Championship for me was just a borderline farcical as a sort of cheap imitation of a US Open um, where really, yeah, great players still come to the fore, but uh, the margin between being great and not so great that week was was hideously fine and sort of luck dependent to a large degree. And I think here uh, there'll be a different kind of luck and, and judgment and thought and um, a variety of shots. And we're already hearing about the, the different clubs that are in use off the tee and um, and the way that you've got to shape the ball into these fairways, which is so heavily contoured. It just looks like a fabulous venue. Um, I would say it's still very long. Um, if I do have a complaint, it's that we've got two 280-yard par threes, which for me seems like a good waste of everybody's time. But um, other than that, uh, I think we should get the best things about the US Open. That is the difficulty, making players work hard. Um, but the best things about good golf course design, and that is making them think on every shot, make a calculation, consider the risk, um, and go from there. So I'm I'm really excited. I just hope that by Monday morning, I'm not completely dead after uh, West Coast US Open. But other than that, no complaints. Yeah, late finishes. Absolutely. Matt, let's come to you on this because on paper, as Ben said, it does look like a terrific venue. It should set up for a brilliant championship. And, and in the past, the USJ, and I've been at plenty of them on site where it just becomes a far shinnecock, you know, the, 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 the USGA and the setup and and trying to get, I mean, we always talk about sort of level par being, that's kind of their optimum, that's their ideal, but the USJ have been heavily criticised in recent years, or particularly some additions for A, the choice of the, the, the venue, but also the setup uh, for the week. I mean, Matt, when you look at it from the outset now, it, we should be in store for a bit of a classic, shouldn't we, on a, on a terrific layout? Yeah, like Ben, I'm really excited because, I mean, just visually, this LA Country Club looks fantastic. Um, the, the notion of what the test is like uh, is quite exciting. I was talking to Ben Everill of PGATour.com last night, and he just walked the course and he said um, it has a real sort of Melbourne sandbelt feel to it, except you just, you just uh, mentioned, Sarah, that the USGA likes to keep hold of par. And he said what they've done is they've grown this Bermuda grass quite thick around the greens and in quite sort of odd spots at, at, at times. Um, I, I read a great line from Adam Scott where he said that if, if they didn't touch this golf course and they just, well, actually cut the grass, but didn't didn't USGA touch it, it would be a fantastic setup because there's so many runoffs that would, would take the ball a long way from the greens and actually present a different problem. Instead, in some of these places, they're going to put this, this thick Bermuda. And Ben said... As a consequence, it's created a sort of weird hybrid between Melbourne sandbelt and a sort of Florida that's gone gone wild type thing. So that's that's kind of a bit of a worry. But but beyond that, I think the the, the course will provide a really interesting test. And I'm I'm really fascinated by the thing that George Thomas likes something called half pars, which which sounds a bit a bit mad when you think about it. But it's almost as if um, you, you look at it in t in two whole runs. So the first, for example, is an easy par five followed by a hard par four. Now, if you, if you cover those those holes in, in nine shots, you'd have done quite well. And a similar thing sort of happens with these par threes, really, really long par three that just seems absurd, as Ben suggested. But then there's a par four that's 330 yards and you can attack it from, 
from the tee. So again, you know, seven shots is what you need to be thinking about those two holes rather than thinking about you know the the exact par on each hole. Um, and that's really strange because I can remember I spoke to Yanni Singh uh, ahead of the Women's Open a few years ago, and she had sort of done the same. She'd actually looked at the card, decided the card was wrong, and had actually reassigned the pars in her own head. And it had actually worked for her that year. She won the tournament. So I, we will never be able to predict which golfer is doing a similar clever trick. But I think golfers that are using their brain when they attack this course will be in a really good spot before before they start and throughout the week. Good stuff. Interesting. Look, we're going to get specifically to the bets shortly. But Dave, let's, let's bring you in now and go through... Um, the much-anticipated trends uh, for the major championship. Um, let's talk us through, again, the, the criteria and who's come out uh, on top uh, as a winner for this week's US Open. Yeah, so so far this year, I've kind of been throwing around the bullseye, not quite getting there. So Jordan Spieth, top pick. He came out top at the Masters. He finished fourth. Scheffler was uh, the top scorer uh, for the US PGA, came second. Uh, last year's US Open, Matt Fitzpatrick was second ranked in my system and he won it. So we're, we're getting there. This, is this going to be the one? So, so yeah, once again, I, I picked out 10 uh, criteria from uh, which to uh, allocate points to the various players in the field. So they are world ranking, nationality, age, US Open form, US Open experience, recent majors, major winner, current form, course fit, and week before. So just to quickly go through some of those. So world ranking, I think everyone's getting the idea now. These sort of weird days that maybe you used to see um, in majors when Todd Hamilton was you know, through, came through and won. Lucas Glover, maybe you'd say in this one. But in the last 10 years, um, everybody's been ranked in the world 30. So the last 10 US Open's always gone to a uh, an elite player. Um, Americans have had slightly the better of it in the last 10 years. They won six. Europe have won four. The average age of a US Open winner is 28.3 um, for the completists there, the point three. But the I suppose the thing with that is that is quite a lot younger than an Open Championship. So, you know, remember that we had Ernie Els, Darren Clark. We've had older winners of the Open. So this tends to be won by younger players still, even though you think it requires a lot of uh, guile and craft, but power hitting has been more prevalent in recent years. And obviously that's more associated with the younger players. One particular obvious stat is you've got to play well in the US Open before. So the last uh, 10 winners, every one of them had had a top 25 in this tournament before. Um, and then a, a real strong one. And this is, I really picked up on this. When you look at, major leaderboards, especially last year, you start to think back, you kept seeing the same players come up. So you kept seeing Cam Young was always on them. Matt Fitzpatrick was always on them. Scheffler was there. So for this one, um, all the last 10 US Open winners, all of them have had at least, let's get this right. Yeah, all of them have had at least a top 10, or nine out of 10 of them have had a top 10 in one of the last two majors. So really for this year, Statistically, you want to be looking at someone who's made the top 10 in either the Masters or the USPGA. Um, again, another fairly popular tournament. We, we've seen Kepka and Ram win so far, already major winners. But generally, I don't know, the golf seems to hand them out. So who, who deserves one next? And, and they come through. So seven of the last 10 US Opens have been won by a non-major winner. 
So that's quite a thing Matt Fitzpatrick added to that last year. Current form is important. Or you think you don't want to be finding your game at US Open. So uh, let me see in this one. So, yeah, eight of the last 10 US Open winners had had a top 10 in one of their previous two starts. So that's pretty recent form. So you can't just come in here off the back of 30th and 54th. Generally, to, to win it, you need to have shown something pretty well. I suppose the difficult one for me this year was course fit because we don't know really. We're making intelligent guesses. So the one I went with was total driving because I think in an US Open, you always need to drive the ball well. I know this year people have noted the fairways are wider, but I think it's still key to hit the the right part of the fairways you know, you, and you don't want to be missing them because of that thick Bermuda rough. So there's a good start. So eight of the last 10 winners had finished in the top 35% for total driving in the year of their win. So they were basically they were good drivers of the ball. So Matt Fitzpatrick is a good driver of the ball. Uh, so um, I went with that. I, I think if you're in the top 35 for total driving this year, I think that's that will stand you in good stead. Should you have played the week before? Maybe, maybe not. But generally... You don't want to have played two weeks in a row in a build-up because maybe that will just lead lead you a little bit um, fatigued. So seven of the last ten winners had had at least one of the last two weeks off. So we put that all together. We add them up. We allocate the points. And I really didn't know how this was going to work. I knew Scotty Sheffield would be high up because he just would be, wouldn't he? Because he's really good he at majors. He just every yeah. week. <laughs> good at majors, fits all the categories. He came second, but the winner was Patrick Cantlay, which is interesting because... A, he's from California, knows this course, but B, he drives everyone rather mad in majors because he never quite delivers what we think he should deliver. So, I mean, I looked at it, oh, right, Cantley. You know, some part of me wants to be in one of those regular top 10 in majors where he flits in. I suppose he's got a bit better lately, but overall in his majors career, he's, what, he's someone who'd put a little disappointment, say, Max Homie is so far disappointing, Sandburn disappointing. So Cantley, whereas a lot of his uh, contemporaries just reel off these wins or top fives, top tens in majors, he struggles, but maybe this is his week. Certainly he's got the trends behind him. Definitely. Yeah, you're right. There has under-delivered in terms of major championships. But yeah, Patrick Cantley uh, coming out on top in your trends. Interesting. Uh, ben, let's get your thoughts on that, on on Cantley coming out on top. But also it's worth just noting this week, it's interesting with the sports book, we are paying up to 12 places uh, once again, but you can get out to eight or 10 uh, places for a little more value. So Ben, let's get your take on Cantley, but also a couple of each way picks from you if we can, a couple of mixes of prices as well, as far as potentially not just a winner, but yeah, where we're looking with the each way market. Yeah, I mean, as for Cantley, I think he's one of those, he's almost a little bit of a victim of the, the Wikipedia yellow because, you know, his last four majors have all been top 15. So if Wikipedia decides to go down a top 15 and will give you a yellow mark route, his, his profile will look pretty good uh, all of a sudden. I certainly think he's getting there. I tipped him in December uh, for four top 20s in this year's majors at 16 to 1. So we're halfway there, you know, still got plenty of work to do. And I also tipped him to win a major this year at 7 to 1. So Obviously now two down, two to go. We, you know, we're, we're halfway through that bet, but um, you'd certainly consider him a, a big player, and I, I think he's got every chance uh, this week, definitely. Um, in terms of a my shortest priced each way bet, if you like, um, it's Jordan Spieth this week. I think everything I read about this course and everything I I saw made it seem more 
shall we say, art than science. And John Spieth is that player, isn't he? He plays on feel. I think Augusta's probably a really good place to go digging for for form clues. A lot of side hill lies, um, you know, pretty wide targets off the tee. You've got to be pretty long. Your approach play has got to be great because of the contours of the greens. Um, and obviously, you've got to be really confident around them. I, I think it could be a really good guide. Um, and obviously, he won a US Open at a wide open course at Chambers Bay, which was still really hard. I think he might have won in five under that that week. Um, he played really well at Erin Hills. I know it doesn't look like it, but he came off the course saying he felt like he could have won that tournament and went and won both the Travellers and the Open straight after that. Um, and I just think this is probably the best US Open setup he's had. His second best effort is actually Pinehurst. Uh, which again, you, you're talking some similar dynamics. So it's a long time since he was a factor in a US Open, um, but he arrives in really good form. I, I wanted to to see what the, the wrist was like. And he said at the memorial that it was not a problem at all. Uh, he'll still be wearing tape, but it's not preventing him doing anything on the golf course. Um, but with that in mind, a uh, less thick rough is probably a good thing. It, it certainly takes away some of the doubt. So um, he's playing really well. I think six top sixes, his last 11 starts, including at the Memorial Tournament, where he didn't putt particularly well. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not one of these people who thinks that Jordan Spieth was some sort of freak 18-month uh, magician who is now just a very good golfer. I, I think he's more than capable of of adding to his majors tally and and uh, this week looks a good opportunity. Agree. Matt, for you, what about the head of the market in terms of the favourites this week? Where's your where's your heart and head at in terms of that? But also with the each way value from uh, the sports book, whether it's eight, ten, or twelve places, and obviously the punters get a chance to choose. Matt, what are you thinking in terms of the each way value? Well, uh, well to address your first question about the, the head of the market. Um, if I was to favour anybody up there, I'm I came quite close to really liking John Rahm, um, and that's off the back of he's got five wins in California. He won at Riviera this year. Uh, he's finished first and third in California in the U.S. Open. Um, if you look at stats on um, uh, approaches, uh, distance, uh, John Rahm remains really really good beyond 200 and beyond 300. It's really interesting that Scotty Scheffler actually regresses quite a lot beyond 200, uh, which is which is not to say that I think, you know, Scotty Scheffler's strokes gained numbers have been utterly absurd in the last two weeks. You know, he'd only need to drop a couple of points extra and he'd, he'd do fantastic. But yeah, John, John Rahm is eight to one. And the other thing that I really like about him this week is the quirkiness of this course. You remember when he was doing really, really well in the Irish Open, he always said, the Irish Lynx golf courses are a little bit peculiar. The, the geography of them is a little bit strange. And I just have this feeling that he'll come to LA and he'll really quite like it. He also played a college tournament here and I think he shot 67 twice. So he's uh, Max Homer won that by a, by a street, by the way. And I think he shot 61. But I, I, I kind of like uh, John Rama. He's not going to be one of my picks, but I, I just I think of the top of the market, he's the one I liked, I liked most. And I'm also intrigued by that Scotty Scheffler thing. Willie, you know, I'm going to be looking very closely at his long approaches. But um, my my pick as each way value is Corey Connors. Um, you can get fifty to one with eight places. And if you if you if you you know if you're aiming for the for the places uh, more than the win, he's thirty three to one for twelve places. Um, I think he's very good at majors. First of all, he's got three top tens at the Masters. He had a first round lead at the PGA Championship. He was fourth heading into the final round at Sandwich. Sandwich might be a little bit like this as well. In that, that's a quirky open course with very undulating fairways. 
Uh, and then, of course, he was in the top three for 54 holes at the PGA Championship before he struggled in the final round. Um, he said he's had a lot of lessons learned from that. I'm slightly fearful that he's had four missed cuts in this tournament. You know, he would have been very swiftly kicked out of Dave's machine as as, an, as not likely to win. Um, but I also like the, I like this quote from him. Listen to this. I feel like my personality is pretty boring and trying to and I'm trying to be pretty boring out on the golf course. Now, I, I, one thing I want to give Corey a big hug. I'm sure he's not that, but I'm sure he's not that boring. But I think boring could be really good this week. Um, I think just finding greens and if. He finds greens for fun, but also he's first for greens in regulation over 200 yards with approaches. So I, I, I think this could be the week when he actually finds the secret to, to doing something and competing at the US Open. Yeah, good stuff. We shall see. And Spieth, incidentally, who Ben picked for his each way uh, nomination, 18 to 1. Uh, Dave, come back to you then. As a reminder, Sportsbook playing up to 12 places. Each way picks for you, Dave. What are you thinking? Yeah, from the sort of top six or seven, I I, I think this is Victor Hovland's time. Um, he's someone who was just outside, sort of waiting outside in the waiting room to to join the cool kids in the top tens in majors. But now he's really arrived there, hasn't he? Four, seven, two, his last three majors. Uh, so he's really got the hang of it. And, you know, one memorial. And, and if you look at memorial, how that course played, it was firm and fast. So I think that's a great you know, sort of racehorse racehorse is having an ideal prep i think that's an ideal prep uh, for this week his strokes going to approach them as a great um he's he's just now got the hang of mage and I, and i suppose the big fear with him was his play around the green but i was checking through his stats he actually strokes going around the green he's actually in positive figures the last four majors so that that's kind of been removed as, as a concern because I think last season, wasn't he? he was like last in the entire uh, PGA Tour ranking in, in that category. And you thought, how is, what is going on there? He's gone up quite a bit, about 60 places since. But crucially, I think in the big tournaments um, around the green, he's much better. So he was ninth in that category around the green at the US PGA, 39th at Augusta, fourth at St. Andrews last summer. So to me, that that's, that's kind of a, a big concern removed. And you think back to 2021-22, the end of that season, he, he reeled off three wins in five starts. So I think when he's on it, he's really on it. He just looks like someone. So I don't even think he played that brilliant at Memorial. He kind of said, OK, but, you know, I think he's kind of won there with a bit of a B game and that'll obviously give him confidence. So he's 12 to 1 with 12 places. But I think when you're looking at these markets, 8, 10 or 12 places, you've got to look at who you, you know, What's what are you expecting? I I I don't think you need to go down to twelve places. I want the f- bigger price, so I want sixteen to one because I think he'll be in the top eight. Well, I think he'll be in the top one to be honest. So Victor <laughs> Hovland for me, I think he's got a massive, massive, massive chance. And so many, you know, we talked about this idea of handing out majors. Who's next? Who's the next cab off the rank? He looks to be flashing absolutely to be the next one. So I really like him. A couple more each way. Justin Rose. You yeah. talk about a lot of these courses that have been mentioned as, with similarities. Augusta National, Shinnecock's been mentioned. Uh, he, he just keeps appearing in the top tens in all in all these, and he's in great form. He's still a really good player in the majors. Again, with him, do you go eight, ten, or twelve? I mean, we've got forty to one, eight, thirty-three to one, ten, um, twenty-eight to one, twelve. But I, I would, I'm tempted by that forty to one. I think he's in such a a, a, a good sort of headset at the minute 
we, we, we talked about that start with Liv, the fact that he, he still thinks he's got a lot of, I think he used the term an Indian summer ahead of him. And obviously won the US Open at, at Marion 10 years apart, but that's been done before. I think I looked at Halo when it was 16 years apart between his US Open. So Justin Rose, 16th and 9th in this two in the two majors uh, so far this year. So I think he's got a cracking chance. And I did I did want a Liv player on board because obviously they've been a real factor in the first two majors. Now we weren't quite sure why. Was it because they had something to prove? Or was it the fact that they were more rested than the other players who've been playing all these designated events? I think the latter is quite big. I, I, DeChambeau was asked, actually, what, what's the main difference between 54 and 72? And he just said rest, gives him some rest. So given that this is you know leg three of that, that burst of four majors, surely the fatigue factor will just be increasing all the time. So the live players who have got that extra freshness have definitely, I think, got some sort of edge here. And DeChambeau is another, another another one of these cool kids in the top 10 in majors. He won the US Open. I think it was the fourth um, the, the season before and that. He's fourth in the US PGA. And he's clearly he's clearly worked out that trying to eat 50,000 calories a day wasn't ideal for his, <laughs> his internal organs. So he's got a new a dietitian. He still claims he's got a lot of the power. And obviously, what gets overlooked, he won that US Open not by blasting it a mile. Other parts of his game were really, really good. So I think he's got the all-round uh, talent and confidence. So uh, again, because I think, you know, we're not just trying to sneak a 12th place or a 10th place. You can play him in the in the eight places market, DeChambeau, because at 40 to 1, because I, I think he's very capable of winning this. Good stuff. Good shout. Uh, ben, let's come back to you for the exchange, home of the big prices, of course. Anyone appealing for you on the exchange in terms of a, a big price? Well, it's John Rahm all the way at the top. Um, I've gone win only on him. So obviously the exchange is the best place to go if you if you get to have a bet at the top of the market, go and see what price Rahm is. He was hovering around the 13 mark, which is around 12 to 1. And um, I just think that's real value. I really do. I mean, he was favourite for the PGA. And I think in the space of a month, we've gone from John Rahm's going to win 20 majors to all John Rahm's nowhere near as good as Scottish Sheffler. <laughs> Slightly bizarre, if you ask me. But um, at bigger prices, um, my other selections, I've got Siwoo Kim, Ricky Fowler, Minwoo Lee, I think, um, and, and Sahith Thigala, who, by the way, I think could really like this. I think I, I saw Matt um, might well have uh, sided with him as well. And I think his sort of creativity and his way of, uh, playing the game should really um, gel well with this course. But I just want to mention a couple of names who people have got to consider. Um, and and Sarah, you're going to roll your eyes or or even well, delete me from this uh, this meeting. But Justin Thomas, Justin Thomas is yes. sixty on Betfair. He is he is sixty. <laughs> now no. I don't think just a without a Justin Thomas shout from Ben. There we look, go. I I don't think he's going to win the US Open. Don't get me wrong. Um, someone said to me, um, you know what what's the reason? I said, well. I, appears he's not very good at golf at the moment which is a fairly big factor um but we have to if, if you take a clear-eyed view he was about 16 to 1 for the masters he's played about five times since and he's 60 i mean it's a big drift uh, if you want to cover your stakes or whatever some people will consider that the other one i think shane lowry is about twice the price on the exchanges as he is uh, if you're betting each way is there a better golfer in terms of overperformance at majors? Probably not, apart from Brooks Kepka. He's just a constant feature, and we know he's got brilliant hands and um, 
a fantastic long iron player. So I, I could see him going really well. You're getting about 90 on the exchanges. That is, as I say, double what you'll get if you're betting at eight uh, places each way. So um, he's certainly one to be interested in. And if you want an absolute Hail Mary, um, I just want to mention Padre Harrington. Um, he's still long enough. He's still a genius around the greens. He still thinks he's good enough. He's putting well this year. He was the best iron player in the field at Yas Links when he contended for that tournament back in January. Uh, he was in the mix, sort of, on, well, on the fringes after a couple of rounds of the PGA. I, I really think he could like this. And, you know, you, you're talking about six, seven hundreds to one, um, your stake. It would be a trading vehicle. I don't think he's going to win a major at 51, but obviously it's been done in the last couple of years. Um, and I think Padre is is really playing to a high standard at the moment. Um, and I, I think he uh, he's one you have to keep an eye on. But that's enough names for you. But um, yeah, back to the very top, the best use of the exchanges this week for me is to get stuck into John Rahm because I think he might just be the man to beat. Phenomenal stuff. Yeah, and Padre Harrington, I was talking to us at an event a couple of weeks ago with Paul McGinley and it's just the, I mean, what a career. You know, he had that little burst of winning those major championships, but just he's still as hungry as ever, still loves it, still trains and practices works out religiously diligent i mean but the hunger's still there like you said the big thing is he still thinks he can do it he, he absolutely thinks he's probably got another major in him so absolutely you know. and and if i can just say as well i no offense to anybody but i i struggle sometimes with like instruction videos and oh the club gets here and all that yeah. i just i'm not very good at golf right padraig's videos on how to get better at golf are so good so if anyone's listened to this and just wants a really engaging sort of three minutes of how you can hit better drives go and watch his videos because you will you will feel like Padre Harrington coming out of them I watch those videos and think I'm going to get to the range and I'm going to be brilliant at golf and um, it's not quite happened yet but I'll keep trying good stuff uh, Matt for you what about some value on the exchange uh yeah I would I mean I I really like Harris English who's 125 to one for eight places but he's 390 on the exchanges and I, I I think he's a little bit overlooked this week he's um He's seven for seven at making the cut at the US Open. He's finished third at Torrey Pines, fourth at Winged Foot. Um, he he was 12th at Riviera this year with a 65 in the final round, 66 in the first round. Second at Bay Hill, third at Quail Hollow. You know, that's Bay Hill major-like uh, conditions. Quail Hollow is a major championship golf course. He was banging contention at Colonial two starts ago. Um, and he said there, my game is trending and I like courses where par is very good. Um, I, I think he's a, you know, he was a world top 20 player when he was at his best and it's taken him a couple of years to get back to that after injury and I think he's kind of getting near that again so I, I, I think he I think that's an enormous prize for him um, I, I'm going to throw one other out and that is uh, we mentioned Justin Rose I've seen that you can get on a sports book 5-1 to one, about a top 10 after round 1 now, the reason why I like that is in the American majors since the start of 2018 He's been in the top 10 after 18 holes, eight out of 17 times. And 11 of his last 20 rounds, he's been sat in the, 20, in the top 10. And four of the others, he'd be one shot outside the top 10. He's just hanging around top 10s at the moment. And five to one, uh, it looks quite big to me for that. Good stuff. Dave, for you, anyone else you'd like to mention? Any other names or any in-play tactics uh, for our listeners to maybe be aware of this week? I agree with Ben on Shane Lowry at 90 on exchange. I think he's capable of um, a big performance, uh, done quite well in the major so far this year without really getting into thick of contention. The interesting one is, uh, I think he's 38 on the exchange, Tyrrell Hatton, who just seems to be playing well every week. And had he had any sort of normal round 
in the first round of the PGA. He would have been right there. I think his last 54 holes were just about the best in the field. Uh, had another big run at, at um, in Canada last week. So I know people might think that his mindset and his and the US Open aren't natural bedfellows and, you know, you need to be calm, you need to be switched off like Retief Goosen. But I still think that gets overplayed. Clearly, if he was a, a complete hothead who just threw in the towel, he's not coming back from a, whatever it was, 77 in round one of the USPGA and grinding his butt off for three days, is he? So uh, he can certainly play a part. I, I, I slightly had a wry smile at Matt's, Matt Inglis, uh, Harris English comment about um, sort of saying that players saying that, they, that they're good when scoring stuff. I reckon that applies to 98% of players and there'll be 2% out there. I love it when it's a complete doddle. (laughs) So that's so, yeah, I think you can find everyone in the world saying that, but that's not to say I won't use it as as a quote in one of my previews as as backup to (laughs) to the reason why. So just two more names to throw out quickly. Um, Ryan Fox and Sepp Straker. Um, Fox, he's not quite got there yet in the majors, but he's building. He's had a couple of sort of, 20ths or so in the majors this year. Firm and fast should suit. So he'd be one I'd look to play. Might just nick a place in the 12 places market. At, I think he's 100s in that. Or he could back in top 20. Sepp Strack has been hitting it great, hasn't he? His approach numbers have been superb. So he could possibly uh, be a good bet for top 20 at 7 to 1. Or again, on the, again on the outrights for 12 places. Um, so yeah, that's Quite a lot of the field we've covered, I think. We, I know I was going to say, we've, we've pretty much mentioned everyone. Just as the summary is, we're nearly out of time. Dave, just run through just the names, the picks for this week. Who have you got? Yeah, so on the uh, trends piece, it's Patrick Cantlay. And then on the uh, my outright piece, I've gone for Victor Hovland. I think he's my di- idea, the winner, really. Victor Hovland, big on him this week. Each way is Justin Rose, Bryson DeChambeau. I don't think I mentioned him. Denny McCarthy, I think, could have a good week as well. Good stuff, Ben. You? And John Rahm, win only. Um, each way, I like Jordan Spieth. Ricky Fowler, we've not really talked about, but he's playing so well. Um, it's probably a big ask, isn't it, to win for the first time in, what, four years uh, in a major. But um, it, the standard of golf he's playing is is very much deserving of the price as he is. Um, and then at bigger prices, I like Minwoo Lee, who, when, when Matt said Melbourne, I was glad to hear it because I mentioned it in my preview as a potential uh, likeness and and Minwoo is from Perth, obviously, but he's played a lot of golf in Australia and and a Lynx winner as well. Um, so I like him. I like Sahith Thigala, um, and uh, I think that'll do. Siwoo Kim. I mean, I, I keep trying to forget that I've tipped Siwoo Kim this week, but um, you know, he, I, is he a U.S. Open champion? Yes, he is. Um, he's good enough anyway, and he's uh, he's hitting the ball really well. So Siwoo Kim to give you a run for your money. Good stuff. And JT, let's not forget him. Uh, Matt, for you, <laughs> just a summary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so uh, Corey Connors, 50 to 1 each way. Harris English, 125 to 1 to each way. I think I would probably, exchange-wise, I think I've just double-checked. Ram is currently 12.5, uh, and I, I think that's very, very good um, for all the reasons that Ben mentioned. And then my my little random one of uh, Justin Rose, 5 to 1, top 10 in round one. Brilliant. Guys, that was superb. Thank you so much. Really good to get your thoughts on on the big talking point in golf at the top, the PJ Tour, the DP World Tour and the PIF. Interesting comments there and obviously a really good look ahead of this week's US Open at LACC. Thank you for now. Do remember 
uh, please gamble responsibly and do check out the website as well, betting.betfair.com uh, for lots of content throughout the week. My thanks to all three of you, uh, Dave, Ben and Matt, the man responsible, as we found out in this podcast, for those daft names uh, for the Live Golf League. It's all his fault. Uh, enjoy the US Open this week and we'll see you next time on Golf Only Better. Thanks for listening.